Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Welcome to today's Steve Dace Show live and on demand on The Blaze. I'm Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email the program. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And the last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. Someday when we take calls again, the phone lines will be 888-900-3393. I'm not sure when that day will be, but I'm sure it'll happen again someday. We have a jam-packed show for you today. Uh, And if you are a fan of when we delve into worldview, then today's show will be for you. Uh, For Theology Thursday, we're going to answer a question from a listener where we're going to uh, debunk, see what I did there, a a common theological fallacy. All right, we're going to do that uh, coming up in the uh, second hour of the show. At the bottom of the hour, uh, I had a young lady send me her podcast on LinkedIn several months ago. And I'm not sure why it, I just, I felt like, you know, cause this stuff gets sent to me all the time. And I mean, I'm not anywhere close to where, you know, folks like Beck and Levin are elsewhere here on the channel in terms of the size of audience. But even when you've got a, a nice upper middle class, is that fair? I think we have Todd and Aaron, an upper middle class sized audience. I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. You have an upper middle class sized audience. Um, you still get a lot of this stuff and I, I can't listen to it all or watch it all. But I was sitting around the other day uh, playing some MLB The Show, and she had sent me her podcast several months ago on Marxism. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. And I was blown away by how good it was. And sent it to you two. Said, hey, you guys got to hear this. Shared it on the Facebook page, uh, which means almost none of you saw it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Not my fault. You know, I wanted you to see it. Just Facebook apparently did not. Uh, but um, just to make sure Facebook doesn't get away with me not promoting uh, the work she has done here. Because what I loved about it is she took a, a, a fairly objective view. There was no need to propagandize or demagogue it. The truth is it's, the truth takes care of itself. She let the line out of its cage. And she is going to join us at the bottom of this hour and give you a little taste of what's in that podcast. So we're looking forward to that conversation as well. And, and we'll get into some worldview stuff here after Aaron's montage in a moment. So rest assured, if we're going to have a, a worldview-heavy show, you will get your three non-political questions. We can all take a deep breath and, 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 and attempt to be at least somewhat silly uh, for a little while. Now, a lot of the worldview themes that we're going to talk about today um, this thing we call uh, really are about uh, preserving, or maybe a, a better word is conserving, uh, this thing we call American exceptionalism, which is really birthed out of Western civilization. And that is why uh, Glenn and several of the VIPs here at the, uh, at, at the Blaze are going to take those of you that are willing to go on an incredible experience next year. It's called the Cruise Through History. You'll get some gourmet uh, Italian food, great nightlife, relaxing time at the poolside. It's a cruise. It's a vacation after all. But there's going to be some real learning happening, too, as you visit Italy, Croatia, Jerusalem, Israel, Athens, uh, Greece, uh, and explore where the roots of this thing we call Western civilization that evolved eventually, courtesy of our founders, into American exceptionalism, where it came from. And you can bring your children and grandchildren on this trip as well. And we're giving you plenty of notice so that you've got time to plan. If you want to learn more of the details or about the different options uh, that are available for you to take part in this trip, just go to the website come sailaway.com that's come sailaway.com if you have the means this is a great fun way 
to pass on the birthright that uh, people pledge their lives, fortunes, and sacred honors to pass on to you. It's a fun way to pass it on to the next generation as well. Speaking of the next generation, here is our young producer, Aaron, with his update to let us know what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away? Brought to you by No. Trump supporters started chanting, send her back at a campaign rally last night when the president started talking about Representative Ilan Omar. And obviously and importantly, Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. My name is No, my sign is No. Representative Elon Omar yesterday once again voiced her full-throated support for the policy of boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel and repeatedly referred to the occupation. We must support efforts to end the occupation and see, reach, achieve two-state solution. This week, I introduced a resolution with civil rights leader, our colleague John Lewis and Rashida Tlaib, who know the importance of nonviolence movements. It recognizes the proud history of boycott movements in this country dating back to the Boston Tea Party. We should honor these movements and that history. My number is no, you need to let it go. Democrat presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg said this about the squad of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Elon Omar, and others. I think it's very healthy for our party to have a range of opinions, especially as we get into this uh, season of the 2020 primary. Need to let it go, need to let it go, not to the ah, to the no, no, no. 135 Democrats in the House of Representatives voted against impeaching President Trump yesterday. Elsewhere in Congress, work continues at a fevered pace. So this is National Hot Dog Day. And as you know, uh, hot dog is my favorite meat. And I have a good one here, sliced in half with some pickles, onions, and ketchup, which is the way I prefer it. So uh, enjoy a hot dog. Moving on, drug kingpin El Chapo was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years yesterday. He'll be held at Colorado's so-called Supermax prison. According to Yahoo News, apparently actor and superstar Chris Pratt is now a white supremacist for wearing a T-shirt with an American flag and the words, don't tread on me, written on it. Politico headline, poll, slim majority supports deportation riots. Yeah, that slim majority is actually 16 points. New York Times tweets, the Apollo program was designed by men for men. If we do not acknowledge the gender bias of the early space program, it becomes difficult to move past it. And now, learning Spanish today. Today's phrase is, are you stupid or something? It is estupido algo. A radical rainbow jihadist stormed past security at a Catholic mass in Brazil recently and violently shoved a well-known priest off of the stage because she disagrees with his stance on marriage. The woman can be seen smiling after the attack. And finally, feminist designer Layla Laurel won the Belmont Award for Emerging Talent recently for her design of a chair which she says prevents manspreading. Two chair designs, the woman's chair, allows a woman to spread her legs freely and prevents a man from using it, thanks to a block of wood being placed where the crotch would be. The man's chair forces the man's legs together to prevent the man from spreading his legs and probably the patriarchy. And that's what happened while we were away. Now, now wait, I, I thought men could have a uterus, so I would assume then that all men don't have penises, right? Uh, uh, slight design flaw there, but it, we won't talk about that. Indeed. Can I go home? Um, uh, sure. We'll take your money. 
Um, Aaron's montage is brought to you by Home Title Lock. If you watched a recent episode of 60 Minutes, the FBI's former head of cyber crimes was on there warning homeowners that foreign and domestic scammers can now steal your home and do it all online because that's where a lot of our mortgage notes and, and home deeds are kept online in databases, which, hey, makes it more accessible for us, but then also more vulnerable uh, for hackers, too. And once they hack their way in, they forge their name onto your paperwork, and then they borrow against your equity using the home as collateral liquidating the most valuable asset and investment most Americans will ever have, their own home, and then sticking you with the late payments, maybe even the foreclosure notices. Don't let this happen to you. Your identity theft protection won't help you. Neither will your mortgage lender or bank. But for pennies a day, our friends at Home Title Lock will. If you want to learn more, or if you want to find out if your home's title has already been tampered with with a free title scan and report, simply go to their website, hometitlelock.com. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. So we we have a story here in our hometown today. Um, an illegal alien that has been cited with triple digits worth of uh, traffic violations and was, and was recently in court for failure to pay up on about $1,500 of unpaid traffic and other moving violations. The next day after he was in court and, and cited as an illegal, the very next day, he went out and he murdered three people, including two children. And if, if we enforced our immigration laws, those three people would still be alive. There's, there's just no other way to, there's no other way to spin this. And I, I would like us to, to start off the show today, to take a deep breath, because that story from my hometown is not alone. In the state of North Carolina, there's over 300 illegal aliens that in the last year have committed over a thousand acts of assault or sexual abuse in the state. I, I would like us to just I take a deep breath, and I want to call a timeout here for a second, if we could. And this is a point in time that, especially if, 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 as we are mired in what amounts to a cold civil war in America, I don't want us to forget if what what it is we're actually fighting for, and what the what the goal is, and. What is it we're trying to conserve? A lot of the, the way we organized our government, a lot of the way we um, determined law, set things into motion, into motion at the founding of our country was inspired by the way um, God did the same when he established his own nation. This is why you see the language of the scriptures all over America's founding and heritage. They, they weren't saying they were a new Israel, and I don't believe America is a new Israel, but there's only one Israel. They were attempting to emulate a relationship. They, they recognized that when people obeyed God, they were blessed, and when they didn't, they weren't. And so that's what these imperfect men were attempting to emulate. 
They were not proclaiming America as, as another Israel. They were trying, in a civic sense, emulate the civic traditions that, that made Israel extraordinary. And then hoping, just as, just as Israel was to be a light to other nations, they were hoping to emulate that, that by creating a, a civic facsimile as imperfectly as they could. Instead of a theocracy directly handpicked by God, they would create a Republican democracy with rights that come from God. And that, that sort of pattern repeats itself on down the line. And, and the hope also was aspirational. That if, it, if they could do it here, and if it worked here, just as Israel was called by God to be a light to other nations, the hope is that, that it would be a beacon for the rest of the world to follow as well. That America, that's what shining city on a hill means. You're attracted to that light. You want to be like the light. You want to follow the light. And, and so when I hear people say things like we're a nation of immigrants, we're not. And, and I say that as someone whose ancestors came over here um, at the turn of the 20th century from places like Italy and Sicily, who, who were the first inhabitants of ghettos who were called wops and dagos and garlic eaters. We're not a nation of immigrants. We're a nation of citizens. And there's a major difference here between those two things. One of them leads to assimilation and the other leads to balkanization. I could do an entire biblical exegetical program for two hours on Old Testament law as it pertains to immigration. I don't have that amount of time. So I will just highlight the two main points here that were unconditional. When God instituted really the world and history's first real immigration plan, there were two unconditionals. Number one, his people were to be kind and merciful to passers through regardless of their current belief and custom. Kind and merciful did not mean they got away with raping your women and killing your children. That is not what it meant. But that they were to love their neighbor as they love themselves. They were to show hospitality. They were to show grace, mercy, just as they were shown. Because if you know the history of the Jewish people, they were themselves sojourners. Now, sojourner doesn't mean squatter. It means a passer, a voyager. That's what the word means. It, it doesn't mean I'm a squatter. That's not what it means. But they were to be kind and merciful to those people, regardless of their custom and belief, as they were passing through. That's the first unconditional. The second unconditional was that if those passer-throughs wanted to stay, it was unconditional for them 
to wholly and fully conform and assimilate to Jewish belief and custom. Meaning, if they were on, say, a temporary visa, they were welcome. Our God is not a coercive one. If you would like a coercive God, worship Ilan Omar's. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. So, if you were visiting, you didn't have to conform or assimilate to visit. Because ultimately, that would shut people off from coming. Hard to be a light to all nations when you're shutting people off from seeing the light. No one hides their lamp under a bushel. On the other hand, however, the second unconditional was, was this. If they wished to stay, it was unconditional that they must conform and assimilate to Jewish belief and custom. There was no little Edom. There was no little Philistine. Little Egypt didn't exist. A passage in the scriptures that is cited a lot at weddings these days, including my wife had it cited at her own. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. From the book of Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. She has been, she's part of a people that because of a heinous act of immorality was cast out of God's covenant for 10 generations. When she says this to her mother-in-law, she is converting. It's not, it's not a, it's, it's not a, 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 you know, a nice sentiment on a car, on a, on, a, on a card. She is giving a statement of conversion. I will leave my paganism behind. I will no longer follow Molech and Chemosh and the other gods of the Moabites, the fake gods, the demon gods. I will follow the one true living God. And that's, that's when your people will be my people. If you want to know what this looks like in a modern American context, in the, in the Midwest in the 1970s, Iowa was one of the leading states. A lot of Midwestern states uh, was kind and merciful to immigrants from Southeast Asia following the fall of Vietnam and, and, the, and the violence of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Which is why if you grew up in the Midwest, maybe you saw this in Wisconsin, Todd, I certainly saw it in growing up in Iowa and Michigan. You were, you were usually, what would happen is you were usually looking up on the honor roll to somebody of Southeast Asian descent. They were dominating. Let me tell you why. And then you go to the parent-teacher conferences and a funny thing happened. These children who were, who, who were allowed into the country either shortly after they were born or even before they were born or conceived were then dominating in English-speaking classrooms most of my childhood. And yet when their parents would come to parent teacher conferences, did you see this growing up in Wisconsin? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. When their about. parents would come to parent teacher conferences, they didn't speak a lick of English. Their kid would have to interpret it for them. The parents came here as sojourners trying to escape villainy. But once they decided to stay they encourage the full assimilation of their children. Do you see the model here? 
And now we're in the second generation of this. And their children are continuing to dominate academically to the point that leftists are now actually trying to diminish their ability to dominate scholastically and occupy places in universities and in grad schools because they're just so much better than most of the other demos. See Harvard. Exactly. That's not something to be stifled in my view. That's, that's the American dream incarnate. That's to be elevated, celebrated. That's why we do this thing. When my ancestors came here, they didn't come here to be garlic eaters and dagos and wops. They came here to be Americans. Wednesday was still Prince Spaghetti Day, but they wanted to go to Dodger games. They taught their kids English. They wanted to be a part of what made this place better than the, the, the place they were running from in the first place. They didn't want to turn it back into the s-hole they were running away from. That is the difference between a nation of citizens and a nation of immigrants. I'm far removed from that now. I'm 46 years old. I'm, as, I'm the ugly American. I don't want to go anywhere where I can't get mad at the liberal bias on Sports Center and get a piece delivered. And yet, some of the old country is still in me. I grill salmon with basil. I will put basil and oregano on almost everything. I love pizza. Italian food's my favorite food. The more vowels in your food, the more likely I will like it. But I'm proud to be an American. I think we need, and I think this is really a a challenge for us as believers. That's unique. Because we're going to be very tempted now as this culture continues to plunge into civil war. We're going to be we're going to be tempted and maybe even called to choose a side. It might even be right to do that. That might even be what we're supposed to do. I don't know. But let's even say that it is. We aren't given permission ever. Ever is a strong word. But as believers, we are never given permission to when in Rome, do as the Romans. We are always to be distinct. We're always to be separate to some degree. Even when we're aligning with folks who don't share our beliefs and our values at a core level because strategically this is the time to do so because there's a larger threat, for example. We're never to lose our distinctiveness. The salt is never to lose its flavor. And I just want to make sure that if we're going to have a full-throated battle over immigration, which I've only been trying to stoke for the last six years of my career, But I would like to have a battle over immigration, not just some talking points both sides of it use to get elected or reelected, but like stuff where we enforce our laws so that that vile fiend who was in court the day before he went out and shot three Americans to death, including two children, that never happens again. See, that should be the goal, right? If that's your goal, then you're going to have this higher debate on immigration along the lines of what I just articulated. But if your goal is to use this for, to, for, to own the libs or to own the cons, to win the next election, you might win the next election doing it this way. But you're going to continue to give ground on giving up whatever your legacy and heritage is as a people that you're trying to conserve to begin with. And that's why I just thought today we needed to take a time out for a second 
and have a, a larger and higher conversation. The two non-negotiables in God's law when it comes to immigration, non-negotiables, unconditionals, God's people are kind and merciful to passers through regardless of their current belief and custom. Provided they're not abusing your hospitality at the time. You're never called to be a doormat. The second unconditional, though, is if you so enjoy the mercy and the grace that you receive when you sojourn through our communities, you must, and say, I'd like to stay in a place like this. Well, then you must assimilate to the basis of where those behaviors are based on in the first place. And in the case of Israel, that was conformity to the Jewish religion and custom and language. In the case of America, it's assimilation to, uh, to what our pillars, our values, our foundations. And I'll just leave the conversation there. Gentlemen, do you have anything you want to add, subtract, multiply, or divide? I'm struck, as with the Ten Commandments, the way you laid it out, uh, you, you, we look at those and we think of those as not particularly revolutionary if our mind is right. We, we kind of call it, well, that's kind of common sense. I wonder why God laid it all uh, Well, it's common sense when we humble ourselves, when we bend the knee, when we realize that his ways aren't our ways. And so when we live in the shadow of God, it does become common sense, thank God, by the grace of God. But it's abundantly clear that actual common sense is now where we live. It, the actual common sense is the Tower of Babel, where the two laws, just two, Steve, mm-hmm. you know, not there's more to it there's boundary yeah, stones and everything oh, else yes, but, yes. but if you fail those two yes the rest of what's there doesn't really really matter and not only we can't keep track of that but we do more we totally try to subvert it upend it which is why i often talk about how what we're trying to do today is actually upend reality we are totally trying to create a world in our image instead of his. So when you go back to where Steve started, I I think that's what's remarkable about it. He says it, and for people with ears to hear, it it, it sounds like it's not particularly revolutionary, but clearly it is. Clearly it is all transformative to live according to that. Because look, look where we are. Look where we are right now and what we can't agree on and the things we actually are trying to agree on as if it's important when it's not even important or it's even demonic. And we're trying to check that box in the name of, look at the churches these days, the ones that are ultimately bowing the knee before uh, demon gods. It, it's it's remarkable, the simultaneous simplicity that Steve speaks of, but he's clearly, it, 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 it's clearly so far beyond simplicity. It is, it is the kind of salvation that we cannot bring to ourselves, we clearly aren't capable of. I think this is always a good a good time to remind ourselves and others as well that government is a God-ordained institution when it is doing its job, punishing evildoers, the lawbreakers, promoting a good um, as it's defined in, in the scriptures. A lot of, I think, a lot of events, so on, on the left, on the far left, it's, we know that's open borders. We want everybody to come in. The motivations are what they are. 
But then there is this growing faction that we've talked about uh, amongst Christians, evangelicals, the uh, Russell Moore types of the world from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention, who uh, seem to want to think that um, having open borders or some form of open borders is actually what we should do as American Christians or as Christians living in America, whatever you want to say. No, the, the role of government, of govern, the God-ordained role of government does not always uh, completely um, – it, it's, it's not always our personal calling, what you just laid out, Steve. It's not our personal duty as Christians to welcome and be merciful to sojourners, people who are here temporarily. The role of government is to uh, punish the evil to do and promote the good. Uh, evildoer and promote the good. So again, it is uh, it is important to remind ourselves that the government and its duty, when it is upholding its duty, is a God-ordained institution, because that gets lost in all of this when we're talking about this as Christians. I, this, I, you know what, here's what we're going to do. For now, we're going to leave this conversation right here, because I think we'll have other opportunities. In fact, I'm confident in the future to chase after some of the other tentacles. I, I think we've said enough for now to let the audience kind of ponder, let it percolate. We'll come back and we're going to give you an honest view of Marxism next live and on demand on the blaze. Stay tuned. Millions of Americans right now are, are, are fighting a losing war against inflammation in their body, and that's why they have chronic pain. And especially as we get older, um, the inflammation uh, gets worse. Uh, and I, I've certainly experienced that and, until I became the latest success story here at The Blaze with a great product called Relief Factor. And hey, I was skeptical too. You know, before I started broadcasting here, when I would just come on as a guest on various shows, and I'd hear the host talking about how great this product is and I'm kind of like, really? But, but um, I, I've used this the last few months and I mean, it's been a life changer. I mean, it, it's made it, my recovery post-workouts better. My warming up pre-workout better. Soreness when I get up in the morning. I mean, it's been vastly alleviated. I, I, energy level, therefore, without a lot of that inflammation, higher. And I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a workout guy. I'm a trigger point guy. If you're a workout person, you know what that means. So I mean, I, I use the kinds of things that are supposed to help you break up the inflammation in the body and nothing has helped me like Relief Factor did, which is why I would urge you to give the starter kit a try. All right, if you are losing the battle against inflammation in the body, it's 100% natural, four natural ingredients, 100% drug-free that help unleash your body's God-given power to push back on inflammation. Try the starter kit for a dollar a day, 20 bucks for three weeks at relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. So at the top of the show, I was mentioning that, you know, in my line of work, you get a lot of people that send you their stuff and suggestions and, and I just can't get to all of it. I, I don't know what a guy like a Becker Levin here on our channel do when, when given the size of audiences that they have, um, because you, you can't do all of it. On the other hand, a lot of it's probably pretty good. 
you know, I've found guests, I've gotten show ideas from things like this that you guys have sent me, you know, and so I, I just, I just can't get to a bunch of it. Uh, but, uh, one young lady sent me a podcast on LinkedIn several months ago. And then for whatever reason, it popped into my head the other day when I'm having some downtime playing MLB, the show. And I said, I'm going to turn off the volume and turn this on. And, and I was captivated. I thought it, it was phenomenal. And what I loved about it is it took an honest, objective assessment of Marxism. We got rid of the, um, you know, that we don't need demagoguery. Uh, we don't need to, you know, add any more mustard to the hot dog. The truth, as we like to say on our show, the truth is its own reward. The truth will do the job perfectly on its own. Some of you got a chance to hear this because I shared it on my Facebook page, which means most of you didn't see it because Facebook has a shadow band. And that's why I wanted to have this young lady on our show here today. Uh, her name is Mason Mars, and we want to welcome her to the blaze. It is a pleasure to have you with us, Mason. How are you? Hi, I'm great. I'm excited to be talking to you today. So first of all, who are you? Give the audience kind of your background and, and uh, why you decided to put together this podcast on this topic. Well, I'm a, uh, I, I have a degree in political studies. My emphasis is in political theory. So I already love discussing these types of issues. And I started the Mars Hill podcast after I graduated college because I noticed during my time in college and beyond that millennials, people my age, are participating actively in a long-standing American tradition, which is a culture of constant political discourse. Mm -hmm. They remind me of something that Tocqueville actually talks about in Democracy in America, about early American culture. And he paints this picture of an employer and an employee, and they meet in the street and take to speaking. And he says, what is it that they could be discussing? It is affairs of the state. They shake hands, and when they go, they part as friends. And that's what millennials do when they meet for coffee, when they're in the dorms, when they're on break at work. What is it they could be discussing? It's affairs of the state. Um, they really care about these issues and not just in an idealistic, youthful passion. Uh, they have a genuine sense of civic responsibility. Most of the millennials I know view this as being part of a functioning adult. Someone who's useful to society needs to be informed about our political landscape. But at the same time, they're under this constant barrage of news media, of people just opining, 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 saying, this is what I think is going on, and this is what I think we should do about it. And that's very frustrating for them. Uh, it's hard to know what to think and who to believe when everyone's talking all at once, all the time. So I made this podcast, Mars Hill, thinking that only my friends from college were ever going to listen to it. And I just wanted to make something that would benefit them and stay away from current events and talk about political theory. Because when you have a foundation of political theory, then you can listen to the news and political commentary and you have a context through which to view all of that and then make judgments. So I hope to not tell people what to think, but just to act as kind of like a rudder so that in the storm of opinion from the left and the right, uh, people my age can have something that will steer them true. Well, you do this very well in the podcast and, and you give one of the most honest introductions and assessment of Marx and Marxism um, that, that I've ever heard. And I think that's what makes it even more effective because you, you, the, the fallacies expose themselves on their own. I mean, there, there was a Bob, one of my favorite websites is the Babylon Bee. It was a parody site and they had a, yeah. a tweet yesterday that, that said, 
Uh, Trump's 2020 election camp, re-election campaign simply plans on just running unedited footage of Democrats, right? So, th- but you you do this very well with Marxism. So let's let's start there because I think you talk a lot about a lot of things that unless you've studied it, like I have for to do a show like this or you did for your podcast, most Americans kind of just think it's icky or bad or socialism. But there's yeah. there's plenty about it they don't know. What are some of the main highlights about Marxism you think they don't know, Mason, that they should? Um, I think most Americans don't know what Marx's criticisms of capitalism are. I think they know about the concept of violent revolution. We're all going to rise up and we're going to overthrow the bourgeoisie. And they know about the Marxist utopia, this kind of propertyless, classless society that's supposed to happen. But they don't know why Marx wants that and why he thinks that capitalism is immoral and what his criticisms of it are. Um, So I'll talk about... um, you know, probably the one that's the most important, the most central to Marx's argument would be uh, that capitalism is inherently exploitative. So Marx says that there are two classes, the owning class and the laboring class. The owning class uh, has control of the means of production Mm -hmm. and um, the laboring class does not. And because of that, the owning class can exploit them. And he says that the way that they do that, uh, he explains it through his theory of labor. He says that in capitalism, you are not paid for your labor, which is the work that you do. You're paid for your labor power, your ability to work for a given amount of time, which anyone who's worked for an hourly wage understands. If you work at a coffee shop and you make lattes all day and a latte costs $5 and you make 20 of them in an hour, you don't make anywhere close to $100 an hour. Mm-hmm. You don't make $50 an hour. You don't even make $20 an hour. You make $8 an hour. So that remaining $92 uh, minus you know, the ingredients for the coffee, the overhead, capitalists call the profit, and Marx calls it theft. He says that uh, owners pay their employees as little as they possibly can so that their profits can be as high as they possibly can be. He says they pay them for the subsistence of labor at its current level, which essentially means enough to keep the laborer alive so that he can keep working. And laborers can't do anything about this. They have no agency because they don't have control of the means of production. All they have to offer, all they have to sell is their labor. And they have to sell their labor or else they starve. Um, So, you know, because of that, they can be subject to a lot of exploitation. Um, That's why we have unions. That's why strikes happen. It's the working class uh, trying to leverage the only thing that they have to leverage uh, in order for working conditions to change. But that could never work on an individual level because individually the laborer is, he's replaceable. Um, It can only work. That's that's why I I would make the argument that the unions as originally formed, despite their history of corruption and ties to uh, criminal syndicates and elements of that nature, uh, were, were probably the reason why we didn't have the major flirtation in the early 20th century. Um, why Eugene Debs didn't go from a, you know, a, uh, a 1% figure to a Ron Paul or Bernie Sanders type of cult figure is because we devised a process called collective bargaining that allowed workers to collectivize their assets, their, their labor power to make, to give them a footing to go toe to toe with corporatism in, in terms of representation that, you know, uh, was, was something maybe that, uh, Marx never either foresaw or didn't think a, a society was capable of of coming up with right and that's that is the thing mark said that will never happen 
at least not until a certain point where the contradictions within capitalism get so bad that the working class just can't take it anymore. And at that point, it's not going to be unionization. It's, it's going to be violent revolution. Um, so once you understand what Marx's criticisms of capitalism are, you can take the debate away from, like you said, that's icky, or that's just, that's not American to mm -hmm. criticize capitalism. You can accept that capitalism is not a perfect system, that it does make room for exploitation, that there are negative effects. And then you can move the debate into the arena of ideas and say, okay, but then is Marxism the correct response to that? Um, does it solve the problem? Or can we, through democratic processes, put different systems into place to mitigate those negative effects? Is it, is it fair to say that if you have the, the pure Darwinian view of the world that Marx would have had, um, or that he did have. I mean, in many respects, this is a mix, what we call cultural Marxism today in many respects is, I, I would say, is Darwin's descent of man just put into 21st century language. If, if, if you have a Darwinian view of the world, if you, it would, and you have, there's nothing transcendent. There's, not, there, there's no being that is no respecter of persons who doesn't hold either those who control the production uh, and those who do the production uh, to the same standard. If you remove that from the equation, could you make a case that actually a lot of Marxist criticisms are valid? Um, I think his criticisms of capitalism are, are valid either way. If you're talking about his, you know, his historical perspective, his, um, his idea that all of this is, um, you know, leading to a violent revolution yeah. that's that's justified, warranted, um, then I think, yes, it's very Darwinian um, because Marx was a dialectical materialist, yeah. meaning um, he didn't believe in anything higher. He didn't believe in a soul. Um, I had a professor explain once, I, I'm not sure if I agree with this, but I think it's a really great point that, um, you know, people often view Marxism as like the people's ideology, that Marx had this passion for the working class guy. Um, but in reality, he's not for the people. He views them as a kind of material weapon. Yeah. Because they're not an individual in the sense that like Judeo-Christianity. To each according to his abilities, for each according to his needs. Right. Right. Um, so he, he wants to get them to the point where they can be kind of launched at uh, the bourgeoisie and bloodshed will happen and lives will be lost on both sides. But then, you know, we'll have this Marxist utopia and he doesn't really think about. You I, mean, I you mean kind of like a civil rights leader who has nothing to say about the fact 8% of the black kids in the Detroit public schools, as we speak, are reading proficient 8%. But, but if, if Don Imus or some idiot shock jock says something racially insensitive and it'll give him 75 bookings on MSNBC in order to, to launch his uh, crusade that they're, they will definitely fixate on that. You mean that kind of a tactic is, is, is kind of what you're describing in a way, right? Maybe <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that the very laborers he was preening over really to him, he sees them as assets too. That's the great irony here. And, sure. and I, and, and the, his, his view of the world, if there is no God that we are all accountable to who judges right, righteously and judges all of our actions, then his view of history, when we, when you look at cultures minus that God is largely correct. You can call them workers and labor, you know, and producers. You can call them uh, feudalists, mercantilists, um, you know, change the names. But that, that view of history outside of, of, of 
obedience to God is largely what we do to one another east of Eden, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, but I don't think that that's unique to Marxism either. Um, I think capitalism can become just as corrupt and just as evil. Absolutely. Um, because of the sin nature yeah. and because people want to exploit each we, other. We see it now that a lot of these co corporations that, that we provided a capitalistic system for them to make billions and trillions of dollars and tax credits for jobs now go out and fund abortionists and all kinds of, of, of things that, you know, help to produce rot gut in the culture. So that's exactly right. If you take any of these isms, this is what I love about what you did is you made, you pointed out that if you, take, if you take away any of these isms and divorce them from divine accountability, you're going to get evil. It's just a matter of what style or what brand, or injustice. It's just a matter of what style or brand or shape it, or form it will take. Sure. Um, and uh, I think that this issue, when it's discussed in particular, Marxism versus capitalism, incites a lot of anger in people, a lot of passion because it feels like there's so much at stake. On one side, people think, well, my whole way of life is at stake. And on the other side, people think, well, the potential suffering of millions is at stake. But if you are a Christian, if you're a believer, um, you can be free from that. We can enter into these types of discussions free from any kind of vitriol or anger or fear because we know that God is in control and that he has a plan for the world and that all things are going to work together for the good of those who love him. Um, so I think it should always be more important to us rather than that people walk away knowing that we're right, walking away knowing that we love them no matter what. Because politics is important and we should take it seriously. Um, but it's not the most important. It's not, uh, we shouldn't take it more seriously than our testimony to Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that these types of discussions can be uh, used in a very productive way. I've been on the receiving end of that kind of grace. When I was in college, I, I was one of those that came in and thought I knew so much when really I knew so little. And I would enter into these debates in class with, with my wonderful professor that uh, my attitude bordered very close to, to disrespect. And he would have been completely justified in saying to me, you don't know what you're talking about, so stop running your mouth. But instead, he engaged me in the most respectful and patient way and it taught me something so much more important than political theory. It, it taught me about what grace looks like. And it taught me that we can use intellectual discourse to show people who God is mm. and what Christ looks like in us. So um, you're right that all of these isms are just that. They're just isms. The Bible doesn't support communism. The Bible doesn't support capitalism because that's not what the Bible's about. The Bible's about uh, the necessity of salvation and an opportunity for redemption. And I think that frees us a little bit to be able to talk about these things and allow ideas to clash without allowing people to clash. Well said. Hey, quickly, let the audience know, where can they listen to this podcast? So right now, uh, my podcast is on a website called Podbean that hosts it. And then it's also on SoundCloud. As it turns out, it's a little difficult to get onto things like Apple Music and Spotify when you're very new, the way that I am. So the more that people keep listening, um, eventually I'll be able to, to be on there. But that's where it is right now. It's called Mars Hill. All right. It's been a pleasure having you with us. You did a great job. Hopefully we, uh, we help you add a few uh, more listeners than you had before. Uh, it certainly is worthy of getting a larger audience. Mason Mars, thanks for being with us here today, Aaron The Blaze. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Gentlemen, you have any thoughts on the conversation we just had? 
Wow. Uh, that's set aside the specifics of the content about Marxism. That's what like thinking looks like. And we are so emotional about everything. Uh, our lens uh, of doing anything is emotion first. And a lot of people who want to tell themselves that they are reason first or science first are some of the biggest liars about that on both sides of the spectrum. And they're simply guided by their emotion. She, she's almost Spockian in terms of what we think of these days mm-hmm. uh, as just a, 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 a pure line. When she says things like, I'm not sure I really agree with that, but I found it a fascinating point. People like that's minds are blown when you do. Wait, what? You don't have to have a knee jerk reaction, knife somebody, <laughs> really. But that's that's when you look at the Star Trek movies. That's really what they're trying to go. That's what thinking really does. It sets aside the emotion, not being threatened by any one idea. Not because ultimately you don't believe you should get to a point where some ideas are bad. You actually really do believe that if these if their ideas are trash, throw them out. But think. It, it was a it was an amazing attempt right there. Uh, yeah, just quickly. I mean, the interview we had on Tuesday with the chief, former chief marketing officer of Chick Fil A, and then this talking about uh, Marxism as well. I think these are a great. They we're basically talking about the same thing. There's mm. capitalism with virtue. That's Chick Fil A, and then there's Marxism as well. Fascinating stuff. Hour two is next. Stay tuned. And we're back with Hour 2, live and on demand on The Blaze. 888-900-3393 is the number. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email us. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. If you are listening today one of the through one of the various podcast platforms that gives, a, gives you access to this program, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a five-star review on that podcast platform, if you like us, if you don't, don't lie. But if you do, maybe even embellish all the more. Uh, we would appreciate that. The more of those five-star reviews we get, the more people like you we find, the more likely we are to get to continue to do this because that definitely helps to raise our profile uh, in the podcasting world. So thank you to the thousands of you that have done this for us already. Now, a lot of you this time of year are going all the way in and what is a booming real estate market at the moment. Before you go all in though, make sure you're going all in with a real estate agent that you can trust. That's why you want to check out realestateagentsitrust.com. This is a little different than, uh, in fact, it's a lot different than your typical referral uh, service in that those are usually done with the premise of helping the agents to find clients. In this case, this is about finding an agent worthy of having you for a client, an agent with a proven track record in the real estate business, an agent who knows how to read all the numbers and algorithms, but look for the outliers that uh, also may determine market values as well. And then one that returns calls, has an answer other than let's do another open house is personable because this is a very relational process between you and your agent. If that rapport is not there, the likelihood it will turn out to be as successful as you had hoped goes down. So if you're looking for a real estate agent that you can trust, just go to this website, realestateagentsitrust.com. That's realestateagentsitrust.com. All right, we've got Theology Thursday where we are going to answer a question from a listener uh, where we're going to debunk a common fallacy. That's coming up at the bottom of the hour. But first, let's take a bit of a break. It's time for three non-political questions. 
We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Because we need some frivolity and vapid vapidness <laughs> and escape from the demise of Western civilization. You say vapid, I say vapid. Steve says uh, either way you pronounce it, uh, Aaron's got you covered because that's what I bring to the table here for three questions, three non-political questions. Uh, the first question is, in an alternate universe, oh no! in an alternate universe, Star Wars and Star Trek were never a thing. They never existed. How is life different? Oh, that's a, that, okay. That, it, that started off poorly. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, but it finished well. Um, I, I think, by and large, in an, an entirely different um, set of, of pop culture phenomenon are created that, that take its place, maybe with some different ideals, maybe with similar ones. Um, Star Trek, I'm not sure about because... It, it, it came from a very specific worldview. I mean, Roddenberry was a progressive utopian. And, and this was his, um, th this was his working out of his, of his progressive, uh, view of, of, of salvation and fear and trembling. He was doing that through the script writing of, of Star Trek. And then, of course, when something becomes popular, then it starts getting a wider audience. And so that one of the great ironies of Star Trek is, is if you look at when the show has been its most successful, um, some of the, the most successful uh, episodes of the original series, uh, the episode that introduced Khan, uh, the, the episode that introduced Romulans, where they were dogfighting um, with, with, the, with the Romulan vessel that's cloaked. And then you get a look inside the Romulan vessel and you can see that the Romulans and Vulcans look exactly alike, right? Those are some of its most popular episodes. And they're the departures away from the hardened, you know, vision of, of Roddenberry's progressive utopianism. You see this in the movies. Um, with one exception, Star Trek Four you know, which was kind of the environmental crusade, save the whales one. That was a, that was a hit at the box office. All of the other Star Trek movies that were a hit at the box office were ones that, um, had more of a star Wars kind of a feel to them. The wrath of Khan, uh, Star Trek six, um, first contact was really the one truly successful movie with the next generation. You know, the next generation was launched as Roddenberry was trying to get back control of the Star Trek thing. It kind of drifted off, you know, into, into battle fights and stuff. And he tried to go back to the original vision. And then when those went into the movies, the only really good and successful movie they did was the one that where they're, they're kicking the Borg's ass, you know? And so that, I, I think Star Trek's view or because of Star Trek's core view, it's widespread popularity, I think is, is a niche of a niche. Star Wars more touches into universal themes. Um, and you know, Lucas is, is was open and honest about that. So there would be some variation of a Star Wars because it 
it was called Flash Gordon before. It was called Lord of the Rings before, you know? Um, I, I'm not sure if there'd be another version of Star Wars only because it, it, it's far more culturally eclectic. But we'd have something else, don't you think so, Todd? Oh, we definitely have uh, something else. And I totally agree with your assessment. Star Trek never got me the way Star Wars did. And I do think it's, you can see that Star Trek, you, you, you mentioned the highs and the lows in the movies. Mm-hmm. Those highs and lows were there in the shows Agreed. too. Agreed. They just kind of went for ideas, see if it works, see if it doesn't. And, and you can see the fandom has just kind of gone along with that and accepted it for what it is all, all the way through. Whereas now with Star Wars, you're right, something else with Star Wars, uh, like because it's so universal, would have come along. Um, but just the, f- I, I think what you're finding with people r- really resent the fact that as star, as star Wars has gone along, they haven't, the people that have taken up the mantle from Lucas and even Lucas himself has not understand, understood or stayed faithful to where it started. And so there, instead of kind of going along with the highs and lows, they're, they're jumping ship in many ways to the, pe- to the point that they had to suspend making these movies that all of us 10 years ago were just thought like cash cow automatic. And, and they're not that way. And I think to the point that it affected me, you know, I'm not so sure. I, I, I can't be certain, but who knows if me, just as it applies to me, my sense of my faith as a young man, my sense as being a conservative, uh, despite all the things that may have been pulling it away, uh, w- would have been the same. I-, I think Star Wars tapped in for me. I don't think it has to by definition. I'm not saying it's inherently conservative or inherently no, Christian. But it's inherently because, transcendent. Yes, it, it. that's exactly right. Yep. And I've always... Even when I, even when I was living as a, a pagan in some ways... There was never been a time when I would have denied my, do you believe in Jesus? I would have always said yes. And I think it's because it's that something about the transcendent was something I was never, ever going to let go. And Star Wars got me as a young man. What almost ruins Star Wars is when Lucas deviated from his original vision with the prequels. Yeah. Newt Gunray. All right, uh, and mm-hmm. and Lot Dodd. Yeah. All right, is he's mocking Newt Gingrich and Trent Lott, the Republican leaders in the in the mid to late nineties. Um, only a Sith deals in absolutes mm-hmm. moral relativism right. from the priestly order yeah. of Jedi. You remember hearing okay. that, and I'm like, oh hell no! What <laughs> yes. is that? And and that almost ruined his own franchise. Is when he got away from the transcendent and decided to put more of his thumb. Yep. Instead of tapping into something, he starts putting more of his thumb on the scale, and it nearly ruined his franchise. With Star Trek, for me, you know, I had very few things that Dave Dace and I had in common. Uh, and science fiction, a lot of science fiction was one. Because those, those were some of the rare things where there was even some father-son bonding. So I used to come home from school, watch Star Trek reruns. I, I grew up in a pagan home. I didn't know about the worldview stuff. I didn't know about any of that. I remember going and seeing Star Trek, the motion picture when I was a little kid. And I thought, this movie sucks. And it does. Um, and I was so excited for it. I was about to just completely and totally give up on it. Because by this time now, Star Wars has just totally taken over, right? Mm-hmm. And then Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan came out. And it's still one of my all-time top 10 favorite movies. I, I mean, I love the film. And it brought me all the way back in. But then as I got older, and now I've had a, I'm have had getting more serious about my political belief system in my 20s. I have a faith conversion in my 30s, and then I start watching some of these shows, and I'm like, yeah, I, I, Deep Space Nine totally lost me until they brought Worf in. 
uh, and and now it, then it brought some action to it. I I I only watched the Next Generation series sporadically. You know, I, I mean, I, I, the best of both worlds. Um, uh, you know the the reunification episode between you know where Spock comes back and the set up the you know Star Trek six, but on a week to week basis, I thought it was so ham fisted and heavy handed with progress with leftist gobbledygook that I wasn't entertained enough to put up with it. You know, um, it, but when I was younger, I wasn't tied into a lot of that kind of stuff. Good question, Aaron. Yeah. Wow, that went uh, a lot further than what I thought it would. I I it wouldn't affect me personally. I can say that quite confidently it is what todd just said is is fascinating though i would say though we would probably have gotten one of the marvel or dc movie or uh, television franchises the serious ones we might have gotten that a little bit sooner than Mm -hmm. we did maybe even by a couple decades um so i i think that's that would be a big change because something has to something would have had to at that point in history with the cinema the way it was trending something would have had to have filled that vacuum and i think the, the superhero world probably would have done that. Question number two, what's on your Mount Rushmore of beverages? It can be anything, pop, anything, beverages. Well, I would have had, I would have had Coke Zero on there until about April 23rd. <laughs> they stopped making that? No, they're still making it, but I haven't had any caffeine since then. Oh, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Um, so beverages, uh, you know what? Um, I love Hawaiian Punch. I loved it as a kid. And then I had to stop drinking it when I got older because it just has so much sugar. So my new jam is I have discovered they are selling sugar-free single packets of Hawaiian Punch. And so that is kind of, uh, so I, I, I would put Hawaiian Punch on there. Um, I love, um, I don't know if I should admit this. No BS. I know it's. I'm going to make an admission, so go ahead. Okay. Um, I, I know, I know this is probably a dude code violation. Mine is too. Okay. I freaking love pina coladas, man. They're so good. I know I'm supposed to tell you, I'm, I'm not a big drinker to begin with, you know, and I might have one of those like in a year and I never developed a taste for beer, you know, by and large. It's funny you say that because yesterday during the show we were caught in the rain. (laughs) Okay. That's too much. That was bad. That was really bad. I'm gonna be but but if bad. I do like pina coladas, yes, I, I, I do like those. Steve Dace, the musical. <laughs> uh, so I'll put pina coladas on there. Hawaiian punch. Um, dude, give me the, um, the Fiji water. Oh, man. That's like the best water on earth. So I'm going I'm I'm to put the Fiji bottled water on my Mount Rushmore of drinks. I get one more, right? Yeah. Okay. So one, if I choose to imbibe, one, if I want to mimic a sugar high, which doesn't have any sugar, but will psych me up to thinking that it does. The other, if I just uh, need to, you know, some good old fashioned, God given uh, uh, nourishment. Then what else should I put in there? You know, man, I'm going to go with the Verner's ginger ale. I'm going to put that in there. I'm going with those four. A listener brought some of that stuff in. Is it the truth? It is. It really is. Told you. And I told I told you, Steve. I, I finally had some of it a couple weeks ago, 
And it's like it brought me back to Harry Potter world and drinking butterbeer. Yeah. I mean, it is it, it is really when we took unique, our kids there to Universal back in 2015 yeah. for Christmas and we went to, you know, uh, what's the place called? That's um, Hogsmeade. Hogsmeade. Yeah. And we went there and got the kids all butterbeer and, and I drank some of it. I'm like, guys, I had this all my childhood. It was called Werner's Ginger Ale and looked at me like I was from another world, you know, but Werner's is the truth, bro. It's the truth. I'm going with those four. I am going with uh, Coca-Cola. I don't remember when it was in my life, but there was a point when you're a young man and it's you kid, your parents are buying it and it's your Coke or Pepsi or something else. But when, when you kind of realize, why, why am I drinking Pepsi ever? Sorry. Yeah. I mean, Coke. It's Coke. Uh, black coffee. Uh, far more in the winter in the uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. And... Uh, our local brewery here, uh, Confluence IPAs. Hmm. Uh, you like the dry, don't you, Todd? You really like the dry. Because it's Cabernet, if I drink wine, that's what, or Sauvignon. Or what, uh, vinegar's yeah. not on your yeah. list? Well, I mean, that, you can that's, that that's stuff. next level stuff. I mean, I, I mean, that's where I become a Jedi, and I don't even know if I can expose mere mortals to that. But yes, if... if <laughs> I... Uh, I know this is probably probably really dumb for this. Don't care. Here I go. Uh, water. It's it's at the top of my list. It's the number one thing that I drink. I, I drink like at least three to four liters of water a day. It's just I can't for I just can't stand anything else um, as far as just my go to beverage. I, I don't drink pop all the time. I, I'm not really a huge sugar guy. So water. Water's at the top of my list. Then coffee. Um, black coffee like Todd as well. Uh, let's see. The next thing. As far as if I do drink pop, what I drink is Dr. Pepper. Uh, that stuff I is the truth Dr. as Pepper. well. Yeah. Um, That's a narrow miss, yes. Yeah. And then the fourth thing, and this is the dude could violation, but I recently discovered uh, this drink called uh, Spiked Seltzer. It is good stuff, but it is frou-frou, kind of like the pina colada. Yep. There yep. is The thing that I like about it, they're only, uh, like, I don't have to watch the sugar and calories too much. I just don't like it because sugar, refined sugar, is just bad for you. It just really is. Uh, so there's no sugar in this and uh, and only, like, 90 calories as well. And it, it's just really refreshing. And uh, it tastes really good as well. It doesn't taste like medicine, like some stuff like that does. So that's my, uh, that's my Mount Rushmore L- of beverages. Let me say, I, I have way more respect for you guys enjoying those drinks. If you're going to drink an alcoholic beverage, you should do it because you like it. You should not be part of the crowd that has to drink, like, bourbon just because it's... made in it's my basement bec- with, a, with a ZZ Top beard. Well, yeah. well because While it's... reading Calvin's Institutes on the Christian religion. Yes. yes, because it's the same thing as skinny jeans. I mean, don't do it just because it's like you're supposed to check the box, man. It's not worth it. I love Dr. Pepper. Oh, yeah, Dr. Pepper. I'll never awesome. forget the day Noah went to Adventureland, the local amusement park, for the first time. And that was the first time that he tried pop. And it's we just didn't want to give it to him when they were young because we didn't want him to get right. hooked on yeah, it, yeah. you know? Same. And so he goes there with the church group and he comes back. He's like, I had Dr. Pepper. It changed my life. I'll never forget that. Yes. That was like five years ago. <laughs> if if I if I could if I could still do the caffeine thing, I'd have green tea. Um and then I'd have uh Dr. Pepper and Coke Zero would be three of the selections on the list. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, final question. What's the worst experience you've ever had at Walmart or another department store? Worst experience I've ever had at Walmart or another department store. I'm going to let you go first. I got to think about this one. 
Well, I mean, I, I on the boycott, I think all of us should, but you know, Target deciding that the bathrooms were up for grabs. I mean, we just we just flat out boycotted Target. The only time we've been back is when we've gotten a gift certificate for some reason and it's just there and it's free money so you mm-hmm. go and you get socks and underwear or something like that um but yeah we don't we do not go back to target but that's not personal to me uh i maybe aaron you need to go first give us a second do you yeah i gotta think of it because i've not had too many bad experiences because i do you I, are I, you a target person or a walmart person Steve? i'm more of a walmart person yeah. you know um it's america yeah but I, I kind of put off a vibe, at least I'm, my wife tells me this, because she has all kinds of customer service issues and problems, and I like almost never do, unless I'm dealing with American Airlines. Um, did I say that out loud? Good. But <laughs> but, but my wife, I always say this to my wife, she's like, well, you kind of put off a vibe that people just know better that, to even try. Do I do that? Do I get put off a vibe like that, do you think? Because I don't really have a lot of horror stories uh, along those lines that I can think of. You know, I mean, well, I'll give you one last, I did, I, you know, we did our grocery shopping at Walmart this week and I loved the, I loved the, uh, the, uh, zero sugar, uh, fruit flavored bottles, particularly the Fuji apple one, the, you know, the, the carbonated water. That's one of my favorite drinks too. And they were totally out of it this time. You go to the, you go to the one that's closest to you. Yeah. Just, by Jordan Creek, the mall. Yeah. Well, you, so do, they were totally do, out of my water, my flavored waters. And so that's my horror story. Do that. Do they, do the robots chase you around too? They do not chase me around. No. Okay. They do uh, for me at that they, one. They do. Yeah. You are okay. w- you are way more conflict avoidant publicly than people might guess. I mean, I don't. Th- I, that's the vibe. I just don't think you want. Yeah. I just don't. I don't give you an avenue. Yeah. Like, I don't I just open like, the door I'm, for you to yeah. even attempt it. I mean, I in public, I'm definitely more into conflict than you are. I've just well, I, see, I used to be quite a bit, but then the more notoriety I got, I right, realized no, I to a certain. That. There's, I, I can't be seen arguing those things. I get, it just, it's terrible from a career standpoint, right? So the only way to avoid that then I've learned was I'm just going to give you a vibe. I'm a, I'm a walking Gadsden flag. Don't tread on me. I just, I just give you the vibe. This isn't even an option. So don't even go there. I'm not even, I'm not entertaining today, but thank you. Right. That's why. Um, I, mine, I'm coming up on the two year anniversary of, of this experience. A couple of years ago, I went up on a, a fishing trip I know this is really annoying some of you. I'm going to get it fixed. Uh, the, the microphone keeps moving around on me for the TV audience. I was <laughs> yeah, going up it's to annoying a, people. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. meaning you, and, and it's annoying me as well. Yeah, uh, I was going up. I was getting ready to go up for a fishing trip up in the Boundary Waters in Minnesota, and um, I needed to get some supplies, so I went to Walmart. And I went to the for those of you who live in the Des Moines area, I went to the Windsor Heights Walmart because at the time that was the closest one to me. And um, otherwise known as a genetic booyah base. Yeah, it's it's a fun place, um, entertaining in in a perverse way. Lots of your people at Walmart memes have been filmed there. Yes, yes. exactly. Um, so I went to this Walmart um, and I needed to get some, a new pocket knife. I needed to get a new canteen. I needed to get some bug, bug spray. Um, and I wanted to get some beef jerky as well for the trip up there. And so... I walk into Walmart and it was after work. That time we were still on in days for, uh, I think we were still with, no, we were doing, we were with CRTV, but it was a late afternoon rush hour. And um, so I walk in there, it's really busy, go over the camping section. I, um, looking at the, the pocket, pocket knives and uh, down the aisle, I see out of the corner of my eye, what I thought was just this older looking lady who was just um, staring at me. 
And so I kind of looked down and she went on uh, went over to the aisle that had both the canteen and the and the bug spray in it. And I'm looking at the different canteens, uh, you know, just the, the water jug things and uh, looking at the bug spray as well, because um, I don't know if you guys have been to the Boundary Waters or in Minnesota at all. Uh, mosquitoes will eat you alive. And uh, I'm looking in this aisle and there's what I think was this old lady again down down this aisle, just kind of staring at me. Is she going to tell you and to I'm look going, like her dead son? Is this the, and the, um, and uh, I uh, I I look at her again, and I'm um, you know slightly slightly miffed, concerned, kind of freaked out a little bit. And so I go, I I get my stuff, I go across the store to the food section, and um, I'm looking at the beef jerky, and who else is there but this old lady again? And she's just staring at me. And this time for real. And I'm, I'm creeped out by this point, so I'm like, I'm going to get the heck out of here. So I take a circuitous route up to the front of the store. It's busy rush hour, like I said. So I find the cash register, the cashier uh, that is uh, least busy. And um, I go up and I have my stuff up there. And who else is standing in front of me but that old lady? And uh, she's staring at me again. And uh, I nod to acknowledge her weirdness. And she says, I'm sorry, I'm sure you've noticed me staring at you uh, in the store today. Um, it's just that you look so much like my dead son um, who died a, a, a month ago. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to hear that. And she said, um, could you do a favor for me? Could you, could you take a picture with me? And I'm like, okay, sure. So she whips out her phone. She holds it up to us. She puts her arm around me and she says, say bye-bye, mama. And I'm like... Bye-bye, Mama. And so she takes the picture, she gets her stuff, uh, checks out, and she walks out. I put my stuff on there, the beef jerky, the canteen, the, the bug spray, um, the pocket knife. The cashier says, all right, sir, that'll be $111.12. I'm like, no freaking way it's $111. And the cashier says, well, your mom said that you'd uh, cover for her. I said, no. I said a few choice words. And so I ran out in the parking lot. And here's this old lady shuffling across the parking lot with her cart with all the stuff that I was apparently supposed to pay for. I run up to her. I pull on her arm and her arm falls off. So I start pulling on her other arm just like I'm pulling on your leg right now. Todd. I think he turned my mic off in the middle. I did, yeah. <laughs> because he specifically asked us before the break. I turned both of your mics off. Not, not, not so to I step knew, on his... I knew... I knew that you would probably eventually. I, I, I have to be the only talk show host in America that allows his producer to reset his own material. Yeah. Sometimes I don't know what we're about. It was in that moment. I was like, what, what are we doing? For those, you, a, for those of you that are new, Aaron did this two years ago. Yeah. And it was really good the first time. And we were totally hooked, yes. remember? Yeah. Yeah, that was the first. That, 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 that's not meant to have a sequel. I was like the a direct show repeat. There. I just couldn't anymore. I, there's you, a story. you just treated him like the unknown comic right there. Absolutely, yes. Not a department store, but it happened just earlier this week. I'm at Casey's, which is a uh, convenience store chain, and they it, in small towns across Iowa, and they have a kitchen in every one that sells pizza. Now, if you're about like I don't think Steve's a Italian purist, but I met people. Oh, I would never touch that pizza. You listen, their hot sausage pizza is good. They, it, it's like if if you're talking like, should I go? Uh, little Caesars or Domino's or Casey's, I would take Casey's. Casey, it's a solid every man's pizza. But I'm in there, and this, speaking of old woman, she's there paying for it, and she's opening up the box, 
and lecturing the guy who didn't make the pizza, the guy, he like the teenage guy who's running the counter. And she's looking, why am I paying for this? There's hardly any sausage on this pizza. Look, I, I'm standing next to her. I'm looking at it. It's a totally normal amount of sausage on a pizza. Not too much, not too, totally normal. She is literally sitting there counting the pieces of sausage to this well, guy. Where's the meat? Out. She's going, yeah. Clara Peller, where's uh, the meat? And totally. <laughs> and he, this dude's like, man, um, I just like, Man, this is a white castle. Yes, honestly, <laughs> I could, but she is going to bat on this thing. So yeah, that, and that was real. Yeah, I I think the only the only place that's made me go into uh, can I speak to your manager mode is the uh, United States Postal Service. That's the only place that that's ever. Happened yeah, I could at. see that. I could see that. It's been a while since I've had to ask to speak to a manager though. But I I only go to like two places. The Walmart theater. and the movie theater yeah. and Costco. There's, there's three. Everything else I get, I buy online, you know, so I don't have to. That's another way to just completely remove the human resource or customer service element is just buy online. That's where I, I do a lot of my shopping. Amazon salutes you. Anything I can do to further isolate myself. <laughs> yep. That's that's no BS. <laughs> I was somewhat kidding, and then Todd's like, yeah, it's totally bleep. <laughs> oh, that's good. Speaking of isolating yourself, how's uh, how's your record in MLB The Show, by the way? You mentioned that earlier. Yeah, I think it's, I'm, think, I'm, I'm, I'm now into September. I'm trying to get this season done now, so I guess now that the lineups are coming out, I can go back to playing NCAA football, you uh-huh. know, with this year's lineups. Yep. So I think I'm, I'm 130, 130 and 5. Yep. Against the computer. That's the Detroit Tigers record this year. So are you one of those people that like can't stand losing to the computer? No, if I lose, you know, now now if if I lose like the seventh game of the World Series, I'm resetting it because I'm not playing for six months to lose the last game, you know. But other than that, you know, something extreme like (laughs) you're so disappointed right now. Have I mentioned I like pina coladas? That was better, way better than that. You lost. You don't get to reset the scoreboard. Sure you do. I bought the game. That's a dude code violation. You think right? it is? Yeah. Yeah. Take yeah. it uh, like a man. Learn, I'm, I'm, learn you know from what? it. I, I'm willing to. I, I, I'm willing to take the uh, to own that. Yeah. I'm willing to take the punishment for that. Yes. Yeah. So I'm 130 and five. Oh, well, that's pretty good. Yeah. I'm getting into September now. So I clinched the division. I clinched the American League Central like on July 17th or yeah. something. I have like a 60-game lead in the division or something. You know what would be really entertaining? I would love to come over to your house, hint, hint, and play you on NCAA football sometime. You live across the street from me. How many times have I invited you to my house? Oh, You're like, I know. I've got something I, else to do. I, I know, I know. Okay. But it's always for poker night, you know. Well, I mean, I, I, okay. You're yeah. welcome. When, when, I get to, when I get to the season... All right, when I get to NCAA football, okay. you're welcome. We're going to gonna make it happen. Yeah, we will make that happen. Yes. That was awkward. Yeah I, 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 yeah, I think the audience wants to hear more about your Walmart trip, right? It was a trip. Yeah, that's for yeah. sure. All right, when we come back here, if they let us come back after that, Theology Thursday, we're going to tackle a common fallacy. Maybe, though, not in the way you might think. Uh, we'll get to that here in just a moment. Stay tuned, live and on demand on The Blaze. This is The Steve Day Show. Back in a moment. Hey, 
Hey, do you have a stoplight at your kitchen table? Of course you don't. Because you're not weird. Like Aaron with his Walmart stories, right? But the good news is you do have a stoplight in your belly. Uh, it's got a long name, but its abbreviation is OEA. And your creator put it there so that when you were full, your belly would send the signal up, uh, up the stairs uh, to the brain to say, hey, we're done down here. Now you do your thing. And that's where your metabolism and your activity level and all that kind of stuff comes into play. Unfortunately for too many of us, that signal just ain't as strong as it needs to be for whatever reason. Could be age, could be we disabused it so much when we were younger that it doesn't even try anymore. <laughs> I mean, could be that's how you know we were born with a deficiency in that area. All right? if, if you think this could be your missing link and you're losing battle with your bulge as you're trying to live right, get active, eat healthier, but you're still like having huge craving issues. This is not an appetite suppressant. It's not loaded with chemicals. It's not even any kind of a stimulant or loaded with caffeine. It's just that OEA, all right? The, the natural means that your body used to curb or should be curbing your appetite. Give it a shot. Uh, you can try it using my name, Steve, as a promo code. They'll give you a special offer when you go to the website at riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E for riduzone.com. Let's get to Theology Thursday. I got a fascinating question from James Meadows. And this is a common fallacy. In fact, um, years ago, before I got converted, one of my favorite talk shows was Man Cow. And what I liked about Man Cow is he was like the Republican Howard Stern. So he gave me all the depravity of Howard Stern, but politically he was pretty right of center. Um, you mean on all issues that didn't involve moral depravity, of course, like guns, immigration, stuff like that, you know? And so I used to listen to his show all the time and he used to, this was like 20 years ago, late nineties. And he used to claim to be a Christian and he would, he would air this fallacy frequently. All right. And it's, it's the one, and I have no idea where he's at now. I don't know what he's doing now. I don't know what his belief system is now. I'm just saying I've heard this before. And it's not uncommon in the culture, all right? So James Meadows says, wants to know, is Paul the Apostle Paul? Is he still relevant? He says, I have a question of, on biblical interpretation. I hope you might be able to shed some light on. I believe I'm aware of the reasoning for why people ranging from Gentiles that became Christian in the first century to modern Christians are not expected to hold to the requirements in the Old Testament, such as keeping kosher and circumcision. They were meant for uh, the Jewish nation in a specific uh, time, period, culture, etc. Okay, I've been presented, though, with that argument in the same way for the writings of the Apostle Paul. Like Mancow used to say, he didn't believe anything in the New Testament that was accredited to Paul. They thought just Paul like made stuff up. All right? I don't know if he still says that, still believe that. That's what he would say 20 years ago when I would listen to a show. And I didn't know any better. And frankly, at that stage of my life, I didn't care. Um. While it is conceded that he was the right man for the time to spread the good news throughout the known world, this argument says that many of the requirements that he instructed the newly planted churches to follow were only relevant in that point of history. This thought process is then used to justify the declaration that certain activities that are expressly forbidden in the epistles are not actually sins. The notion is further buttressed by pointing out that the Gospels don't document Jesus having ever said anything about such activities, so they must not be quite so bad in the grand scheme of things. I should point out that that the individuals I'm having this disagreement with are specifically using this argument to justify, wait for it. Can you guess? Come on. The destigmatization, the destigmatization of homosexuality 
and to justify the authority of women in the church. Both are hot button issues today. This person is also in the Christianity as a relationship, not a religion camp. There, there's so many fallacies here. This is a whole theology class. It's in James's email already. I know I'm not the first person to have trouble with this question. No, you're not. I had to wrestle with it too. And you may have covered it before, but I can't remember in which episode. So if you could get this to me, if you could answer this again, it really comes down to this. Are the writings of Paul transcendent so that they apply today just as they were written 2,000 years ago? Or are, they like, or are they like other parts of the Bible that are more relevant for the societies that they were originally written for? Again, that is from James Meadows. James, let me, let me first answer your question to point out the fallacy that you're being confronted with. So when we had our gay marriage debates here in Iowa, I used to have a frequently, a, 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 I frequently had a guest on the show a liberal friend of mine, we used to do our own McLaughlin group back then too, Dace group. It was just all local people. And he was the liberal, the leftist on the panel. And he was a physician named Alan Koslow was his name. And it was fascinating. This man was a very successful surgeon in the community at the time. Brilliant man. And engaged though in all of these kinds of fallacies. And so I asked him one day on the air as we were debating gay marriage, how he as a Jew, given the law, what the law of Moses has to say, that Jesus quotes from, you hear Jesus say, Jesus never talked about marriage and homosexuality. Well, first of all, he did. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, you have heard it, you've, may have, you, you, you've heard it said that he created them male and female. He created them. Um, and, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one. He's quoting from Moses in the book of Genesis when he says this. Secondly, if you're a Christian, you believe that there was that Jesus is God. Okay, that's what that that you you believe Jesus was God. So you believe the 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 the, the God that Moses went up to Mount Sinai to to get the Ten Commandments from was Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All right. So that's another fallacy for a whole other time. This this notion that well Jesus never addressed these things. Well, yeah, he did. Anyway, I asked him one day, for you as a Jew who believes in the law of Moses, which that's, that's what you need to be to, do, to believe to be a Jew. Juda, Ju, Judaism is not a, an ethnicity. It's not a race. It's a religion. It's an it's a ethical system. It's a faith. It's a belief system. Right? So if you're a Jew, that means you believe in the law of Moses. The law of Moses is very clear on what, what a marriage is. How are you a Jew and yet you disagree with that? And he said to me, well, we decided the law of Moses no longer applies in this area at his temple. Uh, his synagogue, I should say. Benai Jeshua, which is like the, you know, it's basically the Democratic National Committee here in town. And I asked him, well, when did you guys decide that? Who has the authority to decide that? Who got together and said, you know what? We're going to take a vote and decide Moses's law no longer applies in this area. Where did they get the authority to have this vote? Who gave them permission to have it? Why do they view themselves a higher authority than Moses? That's how I would begin this conversation with you. The individuals, James, that you're having this conversation with, ask them a simple question. When did you decide Paul was no longer relevant? What authority was granted to you to make such a decision? Do you have a higher authority than Christ specifically choosing Paul for this mission? Do you have a, are you saying you are a higher authority than Jesus? Did you speak to Jesus and did he tell you that on such and such a date, at such and such a time, 
Paul's apostolic commission has expired. And if you don't believe Jesus specifically appeared on the road to Damascus to commission Paul as his apostle, why in the Sam Hill are you a Christian? If you don't believe the stuff Christianity teaches, why are you a Christian? Doesn't make much sense. Hey, I, hey, I, I belong to something that I think just makes stuff up. Who in their right mind does such a thing? That's why I emphasized right mind. Who in their right mind seeks to join something that believes it just is loaded with fallacies and make-believe? Who in their right mind does that? So the first way to attack this is to turn the fallacy around, the premise around, on its asserter. Where does your authority to declare Paul irrelevant come from? Who gave you such authority? Why should we follow you? Do you think you have a higher commissioning of your authority than the one directly from Christ that Paul himself received? Do you think you have a better one than that? Catholics trace their lineage back to the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter even acknowledged and recognized Paul's apostolic calling, commissioning, and authority. Even deferred to Paul at a key point, by the way. Ironically, do you want to know when he deferred to Paul? Is when they were debating how much of the Jewish custom to force Gentiles to conform to. And the irony of ironies is it was the, it was the most decorated Jew in the entire Christian church. Paul! Who was the one that made the successful argument that we, 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 we don't need to turn Gentiles into Jews. We need to turn Gentiles into Christians, people that follow Jesus. So that's where I would begin, James. Where does the authority to nullify Paul's authority come from? Where'd your friend get that? Who'd he Google? Because here's the truth, bro. He's just making poop up. Just making stuff up he wants. He's deciding, you know what? I want this to be true. So I'm just going to go with it. Because he has no answers to the questions I just asked. That's how you know it's a fallacy. Now, let me make a, a very important point now. Not everything you disagree with, not everything that disagrees with Christianity is a fallacy. Let's not create straw men and constructs here either. There's really good disagreements against Christianity. I think Christianity can hold its own against them, but there's good, there's, there's good ones. The Legitimate ones. Yes, is what legi- you're maybe legitimate is a better word. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I just don't think Paul's relevant anymore because I like porn. It's not, it's not a good one. That, that's not a legit one. Yeah, I, 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 I like naked men, so Paul's out. Not legit. Not a legit point. That's what I okay. struck me about Alan back when I was listening to your show mm-hmm. and put it in reference to our new friend Mason Mars. You know, what thinking looks like. Alan, as you said, it was self-evident. He's yep. not dumb. He's not... But he relied on the most facile, shrug your Because sh- I want shoulders. it to be true. Yeah. I, I mean, used to ask him, hey, when you go into the OR, what if you decided that's not really where the pancreas is? I used to ask him this on the air. What if you went in the OR and you decided, Alan... You know, I really believe the pancreas isn't there or shouldn't be there. It should be somewhere else. So I am going to operate on this patient under the premise of what I think is true and what I believe to be true 
or prefer to be true. How is it when you walk into an OR, you're totally fine submitting yourself to knowledge, truth, and authorities you had nothing to do with unveiling, discovering, or revealing? But when you walk out of that OR, suddenly you feel as if you have the authority to do such things. How do you reconcile? He would never have any answers for this. And you know why? Because most of the time, we don't even prompt that question. James, you have fallen into a trap. You are, and, and, and I say that to you, not to condemn you, but to give you confidence. This isn't a good argument you're up against. They asked you something you don't have an answer for. You know why you don't have an answer for it, James? Because there's no answer for it. And you want to know how you can find out you have no answer for it? They have no answer for it? Turn it around on them and say, where did your authority to question Paul's authority come from? That's a fallacy. You can't debate a fallacy. You reject them. And the way you reject them is you point out to the person wielding it that what they believe is a fallacy. Now, if you have a legitimate, if you legitimately would like to know because you're troubled by this, which I understand that too, ask yourself this question. In the history of Christendom, has there ever been any debate about what is the definition of marriage, what is the proper role of sexuality, what is a gender? Has this ever been, was it, has it, what, did, the, did the Greek Orthodox Church debate it in, in Constantinople? Did the Catholics debate it in Rome? Did the, did, the, did, the, did, the, did the Protestants debate it in Holland or Germany? In the entire history of Christendom, until the late 20th century and secularized Western civilization, in fact, go all over the rest, go outside of the West to the Christian church outside of the West. They're not having any of these debates. So outside of secularized, leftist, progressive Western civilization from about 1991 until now, has this ever been questioned by anybody claiming any moniker of the Christian church at all? Do you know what the answer is? No. 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 So if we held tight to something, if Protestants and Catholics who literally killed each other by the hundreds of thousands in the tulips of Holland throughout the fields of Europe for centuries weren't arguing over this and they were willing to kill each other over their arguments and they weren't arguing over this Why are, why, why are we taking seriously arguments that no one in the Christian church, even people in the church who freaking hated each other, never bothered to argue or debate with one another? Why are we taking them seriously? These aren't, these aren't challenges of Christian belief. They're challenges of God's authority. And those are two totally different things. You as a believer, James, and I speak to all the rest of the believers in this audience, you are called to defend your beliefs. You are not called to question or entertain questions of God's authority. And that's what's happening here. These are fallacies. There are no serious arguments. Because these arguments, they're not serious. They're children who want an outcome that they prefer, who want things easy 
handed to them. And so they're just changing the rules as they go along. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, that's the fallacy, my friend. They don't have the authority to be questioning the authority that they're questioning. Who gave them that authority? Why should you follow after them? Why should you listen to them? Vestiges of the Christian church who slaughtered each other for centuries over deep disagreements. Seemingly, so they had, I bring that up to point out they didn't have a problem disagreeing with one another. A major schism in the church happened like in the 6th century over the date of Christmas. Okay? Christmas. When's Christmas and Easter and who decides the bishops? Caused like a major schism in the church. Like a thousand years almost before the Reformation. Good old days. The Christian church has, not, has never had an issue with debating it within itself or arguing itself. They could even have used in, some issues probably yes, with that. Even, even, even in some of the most embarrassing ways yes. imaginable. And yet, <laughs> how many angels dance on the head of a pin? Yeah, and yet, going to war over when to acknowledge Easter and Christmas occurred. Totally okay with that. Nobody ever went to war over what's a dude? What's a penis? What's a marriage? What's a vagina? What's an anus? Amazingly, they were slaughtering each other out there over everything else. They never, ever went to war over this. They all seemed, when they couldn't agree on almost anything else, they all seemed to agree on this. Damn, that's when we needed Weird. time travel, some dude to come back. Do you, you guys realize that they're going to go full tranny on you? They're like, oh, okay, let's, let's pass <laughs> we'll the serving ball, we'll guys. Settle, we'll settle Easter later. Yeah. If they would have known we were going to argue about this stuff, we might never have had a reformation. They'd have been like, you know what? We'll get to that in a minute here. We've got some other things to kind of settle, folks. Paris is worth a mass indeed. Yes. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a pretty powerful argument, guys. Whole cloth segments of the Christian church schismed, murdered each other, killed each other, plotted against each other, over deep divisions, and yet this was never one of them. Why is that? That's probably the best answer to your question, James, that I can give you. I'm supposed to do a live read here, and I'm totally out of time. And it's a new client, so we're just going to have to do a make good. I don't yep. want to sell them short. They'll get over it. I'll give them a bonus. Because it's a client I really like. It's new underwear. And I'm, I'm, I've like been wearing it, and it's, it's great. That's a good tease. Yeah. That's still a... Yeah. That might, in fact, I think that almost counts more. Like, this, is, this underwear is phenomenal. Like, I didn't think it would matter, really. Underwear, you're like, whatever, dude. But this underwear is actually really good. So I'll, I'll give them an extra tomorrow. Hopefully that handles your Theology Thursday for this week. Uh, we'll stick around and do it over time for the subscribers. For the rest of you, John 317. See you tomorrow. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.